So in, uh, in his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi uh, talks about when he was in college. So this is Gandhi before uh, he would wear the, the garb that he would wear and all that sort of thing. It would be Gandhi dressed like a Westerner, uh, living as a student in London, going to school there, going to university there. And when he, was, uh, when he was there, he said in his autobiography that he spent quite a bit of time reading the Gospels. And he was starting to come to the conclusion that possibly Christianity, because of Jesus' teaching, that possibly Christianity was what he was looking for and what India needed in order to overcome the caste system, which really bothered him and, of course, became a major thing in his life. And so uh, he decided one day to go to a church. And then he was going to stay after the church service uh, to uh, talk to the, to the pastor. But when he got to the church building, and as he began to come in, the ushers blocked his way. And the ushers told him that he really should go worship at a church with other people like him. They didn't let him in. And he says uh, in his autobiography that, that he left thinking, hmm, Christians have caste systems too. So maybe that's not the answer. Why should I leave Hinduism to follow Jesus? When I was in college, I was an intern uh, in a church in downtown Minneapolis. And uh, the church was made up of people who pretty much drove in from the suburbs. Not, not the neighborhood where the church was located. And uh, one weekend, I got invited to a cabin uh, gathering for several families from the church. I don't know, there were three or four families, I think even a couple of cabins that were next to each other. Maybe they were related to each other. I don't remember the details. But at one point during the weekend, one of the dads pulled me aside and I've, to, to give me a message. And I've thought many times since then that possibly that's why I was invited. I was leading the youth, by the way. I maybe didn't say that. So I was the youth director for that church. We had started inviting some of the kids from the neighborhood. And so some of the kids from the neighborhood had started coming semi-regularly. And, and so the dad's message was, it's not a good idea to invite the kids from the neighborhood. They don't really, they don't really fit into the youth group. It was a little bit more to the message, but that was, that was the gist of it. So last week I went out to lunch with a pastor friend of mine, and I was sharing with him uh, what had just happened the Sunday before. We'd had pizza with the pastor. And uh, I said, I'm still trying to get my head around this because it's pretty incredible. I said, at pizza with the pastor, uh, we had a household with uh, a gentleman from India, uh, two different families represented from two different African countries. We had a family represented that, and all these people were born there, so uh, immigrants uh, from Taiwan, and a family from Brazil. It was like the United Nations in pizza with the pastors. And uh, I was pretty excited about it. I said, you know, I'm still trying to get my head around it, you know, like how our community is changing and how we have to change. And, you know, we got a, a long ways to go for some of those kinds of changes. So I was, I was sharing that with him, and he told me a story about his former church. And it's in, you know, it's, it's, it's a church that's in the southern suburbs of the Twin Cities. And he said that 
Um, he started noticing his community was changing as well. You just, he said you didn't have any to look at statistics. You just go to the grocery store. And, but he did have some statistics, so he brought them to his board, and he wanted to share it with his governing board. And, uh, and he did. He just said, hey, you know, our community's changing. He wanted to get a discussion going about what, how, what does that say about us? How do we need to change, possibly? He said, you, you would have thought that he had suggested some kind of heretical teaching because of the pushback that he got. I mean, it was, it was, it was strong, he said. It was like, this, we're not going there. And he said, one of, the, one of the comments that he said was one of the guys said, if we do that, what's our church going to look like in 10 years? And he didn't say it like, hey, if we do that, what's our church going to look like in 10 years? It wasn't that. You know, it was more like, that would be a terrible thing. And uh, it, it's, it was like one of the low points in ministry for him, that meeting was. And he said that church has not, has not done well. It's, it's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Um, those ushers that stood in the way of Gandhi attending that white church, that dad telling me to kind of cease and desist on the neighborhood outreach, that board member at uh, my friend's church, I just wonder if they actually read the Bible. Uh, because from the very beginning to the end of the Bible, uh, the Bible makes the point that, uh, about God's love for and desire to reach all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth. And when we get to the end of the story, God's story, God's word, uh, one of the things that we see, there's a couple of pictures of what God's end goal is, and one of the pictures of his end goal in the new creation, in the new heaven, in the new earth, is people worshiping together from, in these words, every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the picture. Worshiping together. Apostle Paul in Ephesians makes the point that when the church when the nations are represented in the church, it demonstrates the wisdom of God. It's a, it's a picture now, kind of in the not yet, of what, um, of what is going to happen when God's return comes. It's a picture now of God's end goal and God's purposes uh, for his church. So the usher... The ushers, the dad, the board members, are, were they ignorant? Are, were they ignorant about what God says about his plans for diversity of the nations within his church? Well, comedian um, Kumail Nanjiani, who's a Pakistani, who says, I've never even been to India, but people always think I'm from India. Uh, he says that what bugs him about racism is its ignorance. Now, this is completely tongue-in-cheek, what he says. I, I don't know if I set that up enough last night because everybody looked at me like, what? Uh, it's completely tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's ironic, but what he does is he offers some advice to racists. All right? He's making a point. He suggests that they could be more effective if they weren't so ignorant. But again, it's tongue-in-cheek, okay? This is what he says. 
This is what I don't like about most racism. It's inaccuracy. That's what bugs me. I'm like, do the research. Put in the work. You will see benefit. And then he says, let me give you an example of how it could help. So if somebody yells at me and says, go back to India, I go, what, a, um, what an idiot. That's, that's what I think. But if somebody yells, go back to Pakistan, which was part of India until 1947, and is now home to the world's largest salt mine, oldest salt mine, I would be like, that guy seems to know what he's talking about. I'll pack my bags. <laughs> so, thank you, good. So I think, of those, I think of those ushers who turned Gandhi away again. I think of, of, of them saying something like this, possibly, instead of just standing there and go, go someplace with people like you. Them going, you know, we really, we really want to really let you in. Uh, but there are some older people in this church. It'd just be too much for them, uh, you know, given that we've kept separate all this long time. And it's going to be really hard for them. And, some of them are pretty big money givers, to be honest, and they're, they might take their money away from the church. They might not ever come back. And so could you please, you know, maybe not come today? We're, we're working on it. We'll get there someday. Could you maybe go someplace else? And our pastor will be available to talk to you, you know, later, and here's my number, you know, something like that. Um, there you have a more, um, maybe more informed you know, perspective. Or I could see that dad in the Minneapolis church uh, saying to me something like, hey, you know, I know the kids in the neighborhood. I know we need to reach them for Christ. And I know it would be great if we could bring all the kids together, but my kids are kind of scared of them, and they may not show up. And, you know, something like that. Or you could see one of the board members uh, being informed and saying something like, you know what missiologists say. It's called the homogeneous principle, that people reach people better if they're of the same race and ethnicity. And so for the sake of reaching more people and growing churches, it would be better if we were you know, equal but separate in our uh, worship together. Now, each one of those are pragmatic arguments. And we love pragmatism. And there is a little bit of pragmatism. It's like, I mean, just to use an extreme case, if I were to say today, based on this passage, we're going to start singing only songs in Chinese so we can reach Chinese people. You know, it, there's a certain amount of pragmatism that that wouldn't make any sense. But they are only pragmatic arguments. And I feel like at least we would have something to work with. You know, we could, we could work a little bit with that, um, a, 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 with these arguments for actually blocking di diversity. There would be something there to work with. Then we could talk about God's will in all of this, and we could talk about God's perspective, and we could talk about bringing a Christian worldview to the issue at hand. But it didn't say anything like that because those people, that's not what they were thinking. If that's what they were thinking, they would not have said what they said in the way that they said it. They weren't one bit concerned about Gandhi. Really. Otherwise, they would have said it differently. They weren't one bit concerned about the kids in the neighborhood. Otherwise, it would have been said very differently. Like, can we figure out something? Uh, they weren't one bit concerned, that board, they weren't one bit concerned about their church being open. Instead of standing in God's way of what God is trying to do, of this picture that God is, is saying, this is what I want, this is what brings glory to me. They weren't one bit concerned about that. They were just concerned about 
how it was going to impact their own personal lives, and they didn't like the way it was going to impact their own personal lives. They were only concerned about a vision of life shaped by their own experience instead of a vision of life shaped by God's expectations. Vision of life shaped by their own experiences versus a vision of life shaped by God's expectations. So um, they, uh, they make that clear. They make that clear in the way they approach this. Now we could, we could argue, we are going to get to Acts in a second here. We're going to look at it in detail, and I will not go too long. They, we might argue that Christians are just ignorant sometimes. Um, after all, the church has historically missed this message from Revelations and from Ephesians, and it goes all the way back to really clearly in, in Genesis chapter 12. The church may have missed this message that runs throughout the whole Bible, or, or has historically missed it. So you could say some Christians are just ignorant of it. Or um, you say, well, the Revelation passages that are so, so clear and the Ephesian passage, it's kind of a, you know, those are obscure passages. Maybe they don't, they're not aware of it. Okay, but what do you do with today's passage? Because today's passage is hard to, kind of hard to miss and Christians have not missed it. It is the longest narrative, you know, from the beginning of the story to the end of the story in the entire book of Acts. So it spends a lot of time there. It does so because it's a really important passage. It's a well-known passage. It's not obscure. Uh, anybody who's spent very much time in the Bible has heard this story, has read this story. And the message and its imp implications are very clear because the villains in the story, every, every good story has a villain, the villain in the story are people, the villains are people who are trying to block people who are not like them from fellowship and from faith. It's really clear. That's, that's who the villains are. And in this story, Peter portrays them as standing in God's way. So that's the question that we're asking there. Am I standing in God's way? Are my actions, attitudes, am I somehow communicating my standing in God's way? So what do, what do people... Uh, like the ushers, the parent, the board members, what do they do with the irony of the fact that these villains would have kept them out of the church? And if the, the villains of the story had won, probably nobody here today would have ever come to know Jesus and come to faith in Christ. What do you, what, what do, you do with that? What do, what do they do with that? So the, actually, the story begins in chapter 10, but we're going to pick it up in 11 because it's a great summary. And, uh, and so we can hit all the high points of chapter 10 by just looking at the first 17 verses. So look at uh, Acts chapter 1, 11, verse, uh, verse 1. The apostles and, and the believers, and just, just, just to back off one second, just in case you're brand new with us and you're not well acquainted with the Bible, we're, we're in a series that's going throughout the whole New Testament. And we're at the part of the story of the early church. So Jesus has been resurrected, he's ascended to heaven, and he's left his mission in the hands of his apostles and a growing number of people. It's still very early on in the Christian movement, okay? And the Christian movement is pretty much just in, uh, in, in Judaism. It's, it's within Judaism, as Jesus was a Jew, and all these Christians are Jews. So the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that 
the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That's what happens in chapter 10. So when Peter, that apostle Peter, went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you were in the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with them. All right, now we need a little background there, especially if you're new to the Bible. Uh, the, Gentiles that he, the Gentiles that he's speaking about here, you read about in the previous chapter, is a Roman military officer named Cornelius and his household, and he has invited Peter to his home to give him a message from God. The Gentiles, the term Gentiles means non-Jews, just everybody, the nations outside of, of, of Israel. And uh, this is a landmark event because up until now in the story, except for one exception, all the Christians are Jewish people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for, all of them. And so um, the only exception we looked at last week was the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. So the mission has been exclusively to Jews. And uh, the identity of the villains here uh, the, says the circumcised believers is a little confusing knowing that, what I just said. It's a little confusing because circumcision was established by God with Abraham, the father of Judaism. It was established well into, after Abraham has been declared righteous by God, at some point God says, I'm going to have a sign of the covenant that I have with you, this agreement that I have with you, and the sign is going to be that the males are going to get circumcised. And so this is going to be a sign of our, our covenant um, and between God and Israel. And so when it says the circumcised believers objected, well, all of them were, all the males were. And it's not saying all the men objected, and that's how it's described. It's not what it's talking about here. This is just not plausible. Uh, it's probably a reference to a group that is going to become more prominent in the story, who are going to be a group that are of the circumcision, that say Gentiles must become Jews in that sense by getting the males circumcised and men and women keeping the food laws of Judaism, the purity laws of Ju Judaism. So... Um, their objection, we read, is specifically that Peter went into their home and actually ate with them, which meant he was being reckless with his own purity because he could become impure in doing that. And, um, and so, in a sense, you might say these are informed bigots, but they're not informed yet. They haven't heard from Peter. Now, after they hear from Peter, after the church makes some decisions in the first church council, which is in Acts 15, um, and they continue arguing this way, not all of them do, but many do, then they become informed bigots, also heretical and misguided. All right, so we pick up in verse 4 uh, of the story. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. So we're going to get a summary of chapter 10. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it became, came down to where I was. I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, mixed in there are all kinds of animals that they were, that as a Jew, he was not allowed to eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it 
was all pulled up to heaven again. There's an interesting correlation here, by the way, that, uh, that most commentators miss, and I've, I've never seen it. One commentator brought it out. It's a really interesting cor correlation with something from the Old Testament. So um, you, you have to be aware there's a story in the Old Testament, a book, a whole book that tells a story. It's called Jonah. It's about a, a prophet named Jonah who God calls specifically to go and preach to the enemies of Israel. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, your sworn enemies, and I want you to preach to them so that they will repent. And, uh, and, and Jonah doesn't want to go. Uh, in fact, he leaves and goes in completely the opposite direction. We learn later in the story that the reason he doesn't want to go is not because he's afraid of preaching to the enemies. It's because he's afraid that they will actually repent, and he wants God to strike them dead. So he runs away from God to keep his enemies from ever coming to repentance. He goes to the city of Joppa, where Peter is. Goes to the city of Joppa, hundreds of years earlier, and hops on a boat. And you may know the rest of the story with the, with the big fish and all that sort of thing. All right, so uh, Peter's name, we're told in the Gospels, is, uh, his former name is Simon, son of Jonah. His father's name is Jonah. He's in Joppa. He is now being asked by God to go and preach to a military officer of the occupation army in his land, who he has been raised from the time he was a child to absolutely hate, wish for their death and their destruction. And he had believed that when Jesus came, that's exactly what would have happened. And Jesus has been a disappointment in that sense, okay? So, so the, the, there's a little correlation there that's kind of, kind of interesting. So God clears the way for the mission by going to Peter and giving him this vision and speaking to him three times. Does that sound familiar? You know, Peter who three times denied Jesus. Peter who Jesus restores by saying the same thing to him three times, right? To his consternation. Why are you repeating yourself, Jesus? I've already answered your question. Three times. And now he has to see this vision uh, three times. You might say he's a little, little bit stubborn, <laughs> um, but it's understandable given how he was raised. So up, to the, up until this point, all he knows is from this thing, is this vision, is that God is saying, no, all the animals are clean now. Uh, that something has changed in the death and resurrection of Christ. Something, something has changed, and it has changed. Uh, it gets developed more in the rest of the New Testament, and some people say that, well, that's a contradiction. Why do you Christians believe certain things, for example, in the Old Testament, that these laws uh, are in effect, but these other laws about eating and everything are not in effect. Um, N.T. Wright has a great illustration of this. He says, well, consider, think about, think about a mom standing on a corner of a busy street, and her daughter is on the other corner of the busy street, and she sees that her daughter's gonna come to her, but she sees there's traffic coming, and very urgently she says, stop, you know, stop. And the daughter stops, and the traffic goes by, and once it's clear, she goes, okay, you can come now. Well, that's very much how it was. In Judaism, these food laws, these dietary laws, these, they, they weren't dietary laws in terms of like so that they would be healthier. They were, they were laws that made the Jews distinct in their world. There was a, a purpose for that to make them distinct. It was part of, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but part of it was to make them a resilient people who would make it through um, hundreds and hundreds, really thousands of years and stay distinct as a people, this is what's going on here, but now the Gentile mission is going into overdrive. 
this plan that God has told Abraham about since the very beginning of his, the call of Abraham, that it's going to be to reach all the nations. This is going into overdrive, and God says, okay, the stop is done. The, the traffic is gone. Now it's time to, to cross, and he lifts those laws. The purpose, it has been accomplished for those laws. So in a sense, Paul argues this later. He says, we are all Jews. It's not that we don't have to become Jews to become Christian. We're grafted into Judaism. We're grafted into Judaism. Abraham becomes our spiritual father. And we're grafted into Abraham. Just think of Abraham, he says, back when God declares him righteous based on faith. He says, go back to that. That was before circumcision. And it was 400 years before the dietary laws. He says, we're, we're in line with that. It's just the dietary laws were the stop, now it's go, that has, been, that has been lifted. Now, there's another irony in that when Christians are anti-Semitic, because the Bible is super clear that Jesus was Jewish, that all the early Christians, all the apostles were Jewish, and that we have been grafted in to Judaism. You know, so, so it doesn't make any sense, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, it just doesn't make any sense. So up to this point, Peter could simply be having a dream, right? He could say, well, I just had a bad dream. Um, I'm not sure I'm supposed to do what that dream says, except for what happens next. So we pick up in verse 11. Right then, he's having this vision. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. So he hears from God again or gets a sense from God again. There were six brothers also with me. And we entered the man's house, or these six brothers, so these men are standing with him. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. Okay, so it's clear. Okay, uh, the vision is not just about eating. The vision is about fellowship. It's about entering into this home. It's about being in fellowship with, with people who are not like me. So in Acts chapter 10, um, while Peter is giving uh, the message, before he's even done, uh, they are, they're converted. Uh, the Spirit comes on them. In fact, I'll just, I'll just read it to you real quick, what happens. Uh, well, actually, let's pick up in, in verse 15, because he tells us the short version of this. Look at uh, verse 15 of chapter 11. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us from the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in us, meaning us Jews, who he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? All right, so while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit comes down, and then there's evidences. They begin to speak in tongues. They have a Gentile Pentecost. It looks like what happened. That's what he's saying. It looks exactly like what happened when the Holy Spirit came down on us. They actually experienced that. So what has happened? What has happened? What has Peter seen? What is he trying to explain? This is, this is what's happened. This is really important to understand. The Holy Spirit has now taken residence in these people, in these Gentiles. And they are now temples. They're now temples. That's what he's, what he's saying. He doesn't have to say it to them. They understand what he's saying. It's a huge part of what it means for the Holy Spirit 
to descend on us, to come into our lives. We are made pure through faith in Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross. That's what makes us pure. We put our faith in that. That's what makes us pure. And then God comes to dwell in us in these temples. Later, the New Testament explains this. These temples, we together are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We individually also are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God does not, it's as if we were the holy of holies. This is what God, where God's spirit resided in Judaism. In the holy of holies, the most holy place in the temple. Now the Holy Spirit resides in us. The Holy Spirit does not reside in people who have not been made pure by the sacrifice of Christ. That's what he's saying. So did you see what Peter said at the very end of that? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? God has made it clear, open, shut case. He's made a temple of these Gentiles. They don't have to, they, they eat wrong, they do all, it's, it's an open and shut case. There's nothing more they need to do. There's nothing more they need to do. They do not need to follow our laws. And those laws have been raised. Their purpose has been Accomplished. Jesus has fulfilled them, the New Testament tells us. But that's exactly what the circumcision group was trying to do. That's what they will continue to try to do. They're trying to stand in the way of what God is doing. They want to hold on to something, to whether it be, um, probably since God has made it clear, they're holding on to their prejudices. They're holding on to, to their, their own experiences and understandings and their own comfort zone instead of going with where God is going. That's what Peter would have been prone to do. He would have been prone to stand in God's way had it not been for what he had experienced. This is what the ushers were doing. This is what that father was doing. This is what those board members were doing at my friend's church. Now, it wasn't, in those cases, it wasn't Gentiles versus Jews, but it's the same thing. It's standing in the way of God's people being when we gather, representing all, representing every tribe and language and people and nation, coming together and worshiping, worshiping together as a witness of what's to come and as a, a message of God's glory and wisdom in bringing that together. So that's our question. Are you standing in God's way?